um, so I, I'm going to start in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And I want to read a few of the verses. I'll read the first half of this section, and then we'll talk about it, and we'll come back and look at the second half. But listen to what it is that Paul says. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Well, Here's the context of it. Paul, he has um, told the Romans that he's eager to get to Rome because he's eager to preach the gospel, and he's eager to preach the gospel because he knows that this gospel, this good news, it's the power of salvation. And he knows that it is the power of salvation because he says that in it, um, the reason it's the power of salvation, because in it, the, the righteousness of God is revealed. And what he means is, is that this... this um, um, uh, righteousness of God, this, this right standing that God um, gives to you freely. This has been revealed. That everything you need to be right with God, it is not something you can do or you can earn or you can, um, you can get. It is only something that can be received from God. This righteousness has been revealed. And, and so now what he's going to do, what Paul's going to do is he's going to shift. So he started with the good news. So I'm eager, I'm eager to bring you the good news. This is the good news. It's the power of salvation. And so he's going to help us understand why it's such good news, what, why it's the gospel. And, and he does this by, it's like you would, you know, if you went to go, um, uh, you know, buy a diamond. I haven't done that since I, I got married. But I remember when I was um, getting, being engaged to Leslie, going to the diamond shop, uh, the jeweler. Um, and asked to see the diamond. And what they do is they, they lay out this black velvet, they, they, this dark backdrop that they set the diamond in, so then you can see the diamond more clearly. So in many ways, that's what Paul is doing. He's going to take this diamond of the gospel, this good news of the gospel, and he's going to lay it on this dark backdrop of humanity. And he's going to say the wrath of God is being revealed. And he's going to show us why it's being revealed, and he's going to show us how it's being revealed. And, and he's going to do this thing, and I want you to notice that he, it, it actually begins this section. It starts in, in chapter 1, verse 18. It's going to go all the way to about the middle of chapter 3. And, and Paul's going to be diagnosing humanity all the way along, and he's going to be um, doing it um, in, in different levels. So he's going to start with they. I mean, so it's, it's the they. I mean, the, 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 the bad things he's going to begin with are, are things that they, those people, do. 
And the reason he does that is because he knows his readers, they're, you know, very likely they're, um, many of them are Jewish, uh, many of them are God-fearing Gentiles, and they, they would be reading all along, and they'd be nodding their heads in agreement. You, you know, you, that's right, Paul, those people are bad. But the problem is, what he does is he, he's got you, and then by chapter 3, he lets you know you are actually part of the they. Everybody's guilty of sin. No one is righteous, he's going to say. And it doesn't matter if you're a pagan who denies God. It doesn't matter if you're a moralist who, who does things right. Or, or if you're a religious Jew that's, that's clinging to this, this legalism. That, that there's no distinction. Everyone is guilty. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, the wrath of God is being revealed. And, and so th this is how he begins. Look at it again, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So I wonder how many people have the idea. You, you, you sort of have this operating idea that the Old Testament, it presents us this picture of God who um, is a God of wrath and a God of judgment and a God who's angry. And then, then when you get to the New Testament, you have this picture of, um, of a God who's loving and, and merciful. And, um, you, you, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, that he, came, he comes and gives us the softer side of God. Well, I, I don't know where that started. I, I think it is a serious and an unfounded distortion of God's word. For instance, you could go to the book of Hosea, which is in the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea. Maybe no greater picture of God's tenderness and love and amazing grace. Today, in the New Testament, right in the heart of the New Testament, we see a picture of God's wrath, and it's being revealed. And listen, some people are like, well, yeah, but that's Paul, man, and I'm not, I'm not with Paul. I'm, I'm I'm a, I, I do the red letters, you know? I'm all with Jesus. And they say, well, that doesn't help you very much. Because Jesus actually speaks of God's wrath and hell more than Paul does. So, so real quick, what do you mean when you say God's wrath, Paul? What, what is he saying? And, and I think a couple of things. One, he's not talking about this like vindictive rage. You know, I mean, God's not vindictive. It's something else than that. It, it, it means that, that God's not given. It doesn't mean he's given to, you know, sort of capricious, um, uncontrolled anger. There's two words, basically, if you were Paul and you were writing, you had two words to use if you wanted to talk about wrath. One is, is the word thumos, okay? It's where you get thermometer from. It's like this red-hot boiling um, wrath. That, that's not the word he uses. He uses this other word called orge. And it, what it means is this, this settled and abiding condition. It's controlled. The, the, the wrath of God, so it's not, it's not like human wrath, which at its very best is just a distortion of God's wrath, because it always, our wrath always includes the presence of sin. But the wrath of God, what Paul means is that it is, it is, it's perfect, and it's settled, and it's controlled. And then notice those two words. The wrath is being poured out against, what, what does Paul say? All ungodliness 
and unrighteousness. So these two words for a minute, I think it's important. So when you talk about ungodliness, what Paul means, so it's a religious word, and it means that what he's speaking against, and, and you'll see it more clearly in a minute, what he's speaking against is idolatry. So, so ungodliness is acting, so, so it's acting contrary to God, and then it replaces God and elevates something else in his place, which becomes an idol. And, and later, Paul will uh, t- talk about some examples of this. So, so anything in our life that becomes an ultimate concern that is different than God is an idol. Anything we make more important than God, anything that absorbs our, our hearts and our minds more than God, anything we seek to, to give us what, what only God can give us. And, and when I say that, I mean like give us meaning and value and significance and security. Anything that becomes so central or so essential to our life that if we lose it, we no longer feel like life is worth living. For example, if our ultimate concern is our financial condition, that's an idol. If our ultimate concern is to be accepted by the people around us, that's that's our idol. If it's to, to be successful in business, that's our idol. If it's if it's you know, our ultimate concern is is how our our children are going to turn out that that's our idol anything that's become an ultimate concern that takes the place of God and it becomes an idol now then he speaks of unrighteousness so all ungodliness all the all the idol making that we do and then he speaks of unrighteousness and and that's sort of this uh this this moral uh, peace, um, our, our morality, uh, the things that we do. And, and it's interesting. It, he, he puts them in an order, and I think it's intentional. He speaks of ungodliness first and then unrighteousness. It's not unrighteousness that leads to ungodliness. It's ungodliness that leads to unrighteousness. When God gives the Ten Commandments, the first tablet is all about our relationship, how we, how we view who God is, and how we respond to God. The second tablet of the Ten Commandments is all about how sort of this this horizontal relationships that we have with each other. And and so what what I think Paul is saying is that, listen, you've got ungodliness and you've got unrighteousness, so you've got the doctrine. So what do we believe? What what do we think about God? How, how, How do we view him? What priority do we put in our life for God? And then what that does is that informs then how we act, how we behave. The world likes to think that the priorities, I think it does, that it should be placed on morality. That, it, that what matters most is that you're, you know, you're just a, a good person. But if morality is the ultimate priority, then what that means is God is just this means to an end. And he's not really sovereign the 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 bible it doesn't see things that way the wrath is poured out against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who are suppressing 
the truth. Now, this word, suppressing truth, it's not passive. It's, it's like holding something down. You, you ever been to, um, you, you've been like in a swimming pool or you, you've been to the, the lake or the beach and you've got a, you got a beach ball and you're, you're trying to hold it under the water, but the, the, the beach ball keeps wanting to, to come up, you know, and if you, if you it's, it's a great time to video somebody when they're doing that, you know, because ultimately something, you know, tragic happens is that, you know, they're trying to keep the ball down and the ball keeps wanting to come up. Well, that's what it means to suppress. It's like actively, aggressively, continually striving to hold down this truth that keeps springing to the surface. And, and so what Paul's saying is that all who are without Christ, they're in the constant process of holding down the truth of who God is. And, and, and because of that, so why is the anger being, why is the wrath of God being revealed? Well, it's, it's being revealed because of the suppression of the truth about who he is. Well, so what do people suppress? Well, what, are the, what is the truth that people suppress? Well, 19 and 20 tells us. So verse 19, for what can be known about God's plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they're without excuses so so this truth this knowledge these things that are plain it is the basic knowledge of the of the uh the 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 the, the, the power the divine power of god as creator and and sustainer and, and immediately paul's going to go at the question that then everybody asks this is not a new question we didn't invent the question it's always been around how, how, how can God hold somebody accountable for not knowing him if they've never heard of him? What Paul's saying is, is to some degree and at some level, everybody knows better. Everybody knows the truth, but they suppress it. But verse 21 goes on, that, that all human beings everywhere in all times, they knew God. They knew him because he made himself plain since or in the creation of the world. And creation shows God has eternal power and divine nature. And regardless of what we tell ourselves, we know, we have to know at the end of the day, there is a creator we can't know everything about God from creation. You can't know that God is Trinity. You can't know his love and his mercy, for instance. But what you can know, what you can deduce, is that whoever created all of this must be someone of imaginable, unimaginable greatness. And that's the truth that gets suppressed. It's this self-suppression of living in denial of the truth that there is a creator and I am not that creator and he has the right to rule his creation. 
Now I'm going to address some specific questions that may be bouncing around in your mind here in just a second. But look at verse 21 again. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul, what he's doing is he's addressing the, the Gentiles, the, the people that the Jews would have called pagan. You know, the, 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 the people that lived outside of Israel, the, the people that weren't a part of the covenant of God. And he's saying, listen, these, they've known that there's a God. They've known there's a God of, of infinite power. They have chosen not to worship him. They have chosen not to press in and 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 seek to be so if, if he's created everything that's the one i mean he's the one we want to know rather they've suppressed that it, it's, it's kind of like this have you ever um maybe when you were little or maybe you do it with when you're big you know you do it with your kids or whatever you're driving along on a road trip and the and um you see a um a, a sky full of clouds and you know, and if you stare at the clouds long enough, um, that you, you can, you think at least you you can see images in the clouds, right? You know, so I mean, driving along, kid in the back seat says, I, "There's a there's a bird," you know, and you're like, "Where? I don't I don't see the bird," and uh, but they see the bird. I mean, they've seen the clouds, um, or you know, a dog, or a, a um, um, or whatever, right? So I'm just going with this here, right? But the reality is those, those things are not really there. I mean, they, they, they cre- they're making that in their own image. So a lot of people do this with God. I mean, a lot of people look at the Bible like it were, was clouds, and they come up with their own images of who God is. We, we, we take what God's made. This is what he's saying. We take what he's made... Then we, we like pass it off on our own. We don't accept our dependence upon a creator. And yet we claim to be independent. We, we buy into an illusion that somehow we're in control and that we call the shots and that we get to decide what's right and what's wrong. And, and, and when, you, when you do that, when you when you suppress the truth and you don't acknowledge that there's a God who stands above and over all of these things, the problem is, it's not that you stop worshiping. You adjust, you change, you shift your object of worship. See, we're created in the image of God. We're we're created to worship. We, We are people created to worship and serve God, but yet rather what he's saying, he'll say it in verse 25, we end up worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. Something captures our imagination or our allegiance, and it becomes the place where we, we put all our, all our hopes and all our dreams. Things we look to, to calm our deepest fears. And whatever it is, we worship it, and because we worship it, we serve it. It becomes our bottom line. 
there are certainly beautiful things in creation. There are certainly beautiful things in the world. Paul's not denying that. But what he's saying is, is, is giving something that's been created, something in the world, something of beauty or use or um, that is even, that, that, that's good and giving it something that's a disproportionate affection, giving it an ultimate affection. The human heart loves to make good things into their God thing. Calvin said 500 years ago, our hearts are idol factories. We can make an idol of anything. And this exchange in our worship and our, our service, what it does, and this is what Paul's going to argue in it undoes the created order. It, it makes upside down the order in which God created things. God made us in his image. And he made us to reflect his image, to, to, to relate to, to his world and to reflect his image, his nature and his goodness to the world. But when we worship other things other than God, we take on the nature of the thing that we worship. We don't worship what's immortal. We worship what has been made. So from God's perspective, he says in verse 2, this is what, this is what fools do. I mean, this is a foolish thing to do. They became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. There's a guy, a 20th century uh, apologist, um, Greg uh, Bonson, and he, he wrote this book, Prepositional, uh, Presuppositional Apologetics. He says this. He says, imagine a person comes in here and argues that no air exists, but continues to breathe air while he argues. Now, intellectually, atheists continue to breathe. They continue to use reason and draw scientific conclusions, which assumes an orderly universe, to make moral judgments, which assumes absolute values. But the atheistic view of things would, in theory, make such breathing impossible. They're breathing God's air all the time while they're arguing against him. There's a guy, A.N. Wilson, who, um, for many years, atheist, British literary critic, biographer, um, um, wrote all, all kinds of books uh, trying to destroy Christianity. Anytime some Christian book w w would be written, he, he, would, he would come along with the scathing critique of it. Um, British guy. So Easter 2009, he writes in a British newspaper and essentially comes out and he says, I'm a Christian. And he points out in it that most of the public voices in America and in, in, in Great Britain, they, they've all but accepted that only stupid people actually believe in Christianity. That you have to be a simpleton to believe Christianity. He says this, he says, as a matter of fact, it's materialist atheism that is not merely an arid creed, but is totally irrational. Materialist atheism says that we're just a collection of chemicals it has no answer whatsoever to the question of how we should be capable of love or heroism or, or, or poetry if we're simply animated pieces of meat. It's the resurrection which proclaims that matter and spirit are mysteriously conjoined and that's 
the ultimate key to who we are. I wasn't reasoned into this through the proofs. All my secular friends and me, all of us who didn't believe in God, insisted that people care about justice, insisted that people not trample on the poor, insisted that people believe in human rights. But if there's no God, there's absolutely no basis for talking like that. He said this, I came to realize that what we were all doing is living as if there is a God because we know there's a God, but we won't admit it. Scathing analysis. Creation reveals the existence of God who is majestic and transcendent and has sustaining power. And it also reveals this incredible distance between us as creatures and the one who has created. That's what Paul's saying. This is what happens is they, first they, they end up worshiping man and second they worship bull, birds and then, then the four-legged animals and then ultimately they end up worshiping bugs. You can't go any lower than that. First man suppresses the truth about the greatness of God and then he perverts the truth by worshiping insulting images. Ultimately, you end up worshiping yourself. That is why the wrath of God is being revealed. So you say, okay, well, when's it being revealed? Well, the way Paul writes it, he, he, he means right now. I mean, certainly he means there's a day that the wrath will be revealed in a way that's unrestrained. But right now, it is being revealed. It is being revealed. So, so how does God's wrath how is it revealed right now? Okay, so Paul's going to answer that. Look, look with me um, quickly, verse 24. He says this, Therefore God gave them up in, their, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator rather, creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, I want you to know this. Look at verse 24. It says, therefore, God gave them up. Now, go to verse 26. I want you to see this. For this reason, God gave them up. Now, look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. What, why? What, why is God's wrath being revealed? Well, because he's, he's been denied. His truth has been denied. The reality that there is a creator that is plain to everyone has been denied. It has been suppressed. And how is he revealing his wrath? Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. God gave them up. This is a frightening thing to consider. Now, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm dependent on Tim Keller's book here. Anybody read Counterfeit Gods? Which is a great book. Keller diagnoses this, this idolism, this um, idolatry in the whole book. And so I'm, I'm thankful for his clarity. So, so God gives them up, verses 24 to 26, you can see this, to the desires of their heart. 
ultimately, what it means is that the things that, that we serve, the things that we hope will free us, the things that we hope will bring satisfaction, the things that we hope will be the answer to the problem that we have, that they don't, they don't bring freedom, they don't bring answers. What they bring is they bring this, this slavery, this, this control of us. Our hearts were made to worship God. Which means he's the only center. He's the only true significance. He's the only true satisfaction. And what do we find? Is that all these other things, they'll never bring satisfaction. What we strive for, we will tragically never discover outside of receiving it freely from God. The, the word... Um, where it says God gave them over to the lusts of their heart. It's this interesting word, um, and it means the, the literal meaning of it is to over-desire something. So, so lust is, is not desire, it's, it's an over-desire of something, an all-controlling longing, an all-controlling desire. And, and the problem is not so much this desire, this desire for bad things, although that's a problem, um, but what he's talking about here is this over-desire and it can be an over-desire for good things. It, it, it turns things that are created, good things, into gods. And the worst thing that Paul is saying, the worst thing that can happen, this is, this is what happens. God gives us over to what our hearts over-desire. It's a scary thought. Take a man who worships his career, serves it as, as though, you know, if, if he does well in his career, it'll make him a somebody. So he over-desires to excel in that so that he can become somebody, that he can be significant. And it dominates his life and, and everything gets, revolves around that. And the worst thing that can happen to him. You know what it is? That he'd succeed, get promoted, become all it is that he's striving to do. And he'd find that it's not a blessing. It, he'll look back and discover the wreckage he's made in his life. I've seen guys that do that and look back and their marriage is gone, their, their family is gone, their, their friendships are gone. They're over-desired to pursue their God of significance that would come through their work. One, Oscar Wilde said, when the gods wish to punish you, they answer your prayer. So the wrath of God gives us to that which we want too much. And the worst thing that God can do to a human being is to present them Present them the ability to reach and take hold of that which they idolatrously desire. And the great tragedy is it's something that you're choosing yourself, and God allows you to walk through those doors. Now, look, look at verses uh, 26 and 27, probably the most controversial 
one of the most controversial passages today, anyway, in the New Testament. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, a lot of um, uh, gymnastics have been done in this passage to say that, that what Paul's talking about is not really what Paul's talking about. Or that what Paul's talking about is not a, a committed homosexual relationship, but rather promiscuous homosexuality. And, and I would just say, every attempt to do that sort of violates all the laws of exegesis, all the laws of grammar and word meaning. The unnatural relations, literally against nature, which is what Paul's been arguing. It, idolatry, this suppressing of God's truth, undoes it. It makes things that are orderly, and it becomes... Um, unorderly. It becomes chaotic. We, we live in things that are now unordered. And Paul continues this line. It is against nature, and it means it is a violation. What he is arguing, Paul's, is a violation against the created nature that God gave us. Listen, Paul was cultured, he was traveled, he knew all about the homosexuality of the first century, which, which um, rivals today's views, actually. And, and he's, he's identifying all of that behavior as not the Creator's intention for how humanity flourishes. What he is saying is it is sin and God is handing them over to the over desires. Now what he does is he begins um, to two observations. First all, all sex outside of marriage verse 24 uh, makes that clear. All, all of all sexual um, activity outside of marriage is condemned here. And, and specifically here in 26 and 27 is homosexuality. So, so unavoidable fact that the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. The act of it. So not the desire. Desire not acted on is not sin. But the homosexual desire acted on is sin. Paul also mentions a whole range of other things that are sin and wickedness and idolatry. So, so the second necessary observation is that while homosexuality is a sin, clearly here in verses 26 and 27, it's not the worst sin. All sexual immorality is sinful. In fact, in a couple of verses, he's going to give you a whole list of things that he calls wickedness that result from a rejection of the truth about God. And all which deserve the bringing of God's wrath. So, so look at verses uh, 28 to, to, to the end. So it says, and, and since they did not seem fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind. So this, um, uh, uh, this lust, this um, the depravity, this lust, this dishonorable passions, now to a depraved 
mind. To a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. And they're gossips and slanderers and haters of God and insolent and haughty and boastful and inventors of evil and obedient to, disobedient to parents. Isn't it fascinating that that appears in this list? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Here's what's unsettling about it, as we've already seen. Every one of us finds ourselves in this list. Even if, listen, even if you are clinging this morning to a, well, yeah, Paul, that's what they do. You're right. Stick it to them. I want you to know, Paul, Paul here drops a bomb into the middle of your world. What, what he's doing is he's saying, listen, I can't, get to, I, I can't wait to get to Rome, and I can't wait to get there because I want to preach the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God has revealed the power to save, and he's done that because in that is the, is the revealing of his righteousness to mankind. It's through his son. It's not something you can get or earn or buy. It's something he freely gives you. He puts on you. The word is imputes to you. of what his son has done. And the reality is, is you don't know, you can't know the degree to which this is good news until you understand the degree to which you are the object of God's wrath. That's what he's saying. And he's going to start with the furthest out with everybody that thinks in, in terms of they. And next week we're going to look at the moralist and then the, the one who is supposedly righteous because he, he does all the good righteous things and then he'll conclude it and say, hey, listen, the ground's level. Everybody's a sinner. There's no distinction to be made. We, we all, by our nature, are objects of God's wrath. It is, it is the doctrine of this total depravity. Not, not everything we do is completely sinful. But nothing we do is completely untouched by sin. Everything we do is stained with sin. So, so quickly, in one minute, how, how do we respond to these things? First, we recognize it's a picture that maps the reality of the world. And, and get this, it maps our reality. Paul is talking about you. He's talking about me. The only place to run here is to the place where we see God's mercy. It's to run to the cross. Secondly, we don't shake our heads. We don't roll our eyes self-righteously at what they are like 
it's meant to bring a humility to us that says, I am in the same boat no matter what it is that my idols are, no matter how my sin, my idolatry manifests itself in my life. I have a heart that is, that, that, that is constantly making idols. Some of those are bad things. Some of those are good things. It is anywhere I'm going for my significance or my worth or my hope or my salvation other than God. And third, if you're a believer this morning, here's the comfort. You don't have to fear the wrath of God because what Paul is claiming is the gospel, in the gospel you've received is righteousness. You've received being made right with him. And at the same time, you will never not battle in this life finding, making, worshiping idols. So the question this morning, where are you worshiping other than at the throne of God? What are you counting on other than God? And what would it look like to depend upon your creator, your God, your savior in that area? How would you love? How would you feel differently? If if the God of the universe and his eternal son, Jesus, who died for you to save you, was the center and the object of all your worship. What would that do to you? If you would, would you bow with me? Let's let's pray. Father, I pray you take these words that are yours. And that, Father, you would you would open them up, you would um, you would translate them to our hearts and to our minds that the, the Father, we we would come out of here get convicted where we need to be convicted. Father, comforted and humbled by the fact that you sent your son to save us. Wicked idolaters that yet you came to save us and to count us right with you because of the righteousness and the beauty of your son, Jesus. Father, it is not something we deserve, ever could deserve, that we are worthy of, that we could ever earn or pay back. Father, we merely receive what you are giving to us as grace. And so, Father, we thank you for that. Do what you um, would do by your Spirit in our hearts, in our minds. Father, I pray we would not repress or suppress the truth that you mean to speak to us this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.